What is so unique about RSF is their shared goals of justice, equity, and environment. I mean, that's where their DNA comes from as well. And it's so rare to find like-minded, aligned lenders like that. So yeah, we really hope that RSF would be an example for others. And, you know, with impact investing, it is happening a little bit more and more. And we're really hoping that the future is brighter. Welcome back to the Patient Capital Podcast Series, Inside Her CEO Journey. We have two goals with the Patient Capital Podcast Series. One, to understand what is the definition of patient capital from both the capital fund and founder perspective. Second, once you have listened to the complete series, we want you to tell us, what is your conclusion? Is there such thing as patient capital? From episode 151 to 155, we have shared with you what patient capital is from the perspective of venture capital funds and the founder who receive capital from them. Starting from last week's episode, episode 156, we share a lender perspective of patient capital with you. We spoke with Mindy Christensen, Vice President of Lending at the RSF Social Finance, a lender who supports changemakers who are moving the economy from being extractive to being regenerative. If you haven't listened to episode 156, don't miss it. This organization is the pioneer of regenerative finance and the way they operate is unconventional. We are so impressed with how RSF Social Finance operates, how they define patient capital and support both borrowers and investors. For this reason, we invite RSF Social Finance borrowers to share their perspective on patient capital. You're listening to Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for mission-driven women entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Christina Shahli. If you are new here, a big warm welcome. If we are not connected on LinkedIn, please reach out and say hi because that's where I hang out and share my business finance tips. If you have been listening to this podcast for a while and you are a regular listener, I want you to know I appreciate you. My podcast won't be around without your support. This is a free weekly show where my guests and I want to inspire you to balance between mission and profit, to create an impact in this world, and to achieve financial equality through your business for good. Today's guest in episode 157 is Carol Levine, the co-founder of Lotus Food, a certified B Corporation. Lotus Food imports handcrafted rice from small family farms to the United States. They have been partnering with RSF Social Finance since 2013, and they wouldn't go anywhere else, even if another lender offers a better rate. In this episode, Carol share all the reasons and why it matters who you take money from. As you follow along with this Patient Capital Podcast series, you will hear from the investors as well as founders that capital raising is a journey and getting capital from a venture fund is not the only way, nor it is the right type of capital for every founder. 
It doesn't matter what type of capital you are seeking. If there is one thing in common all the guests share is that financial acumen is a must at every point of the journey. And the investor expectation of your financial acumen is different for each stage of your funding journey. At the very least, your incoming investors wants to see well-thought assumptions built into the financial model. So to help you in thinking through all the assumptions you need for the financial model, we have created a guide. This guide shows you how to create an improved forecast for future growth. By thinking through the question we put together in this guide, you can incorporate them into your assumption and build them into the financial model. In addition to using the guide, you have another option. If you don't have time to build a well-thought financial model on your own, our fractional CFO can help you. Connect with us at theprofitreimagine.com forward slash let's chat. Now, let's find out Carol's CEO journey. Carol Levine, welcome to her CEO journey. It is a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. It's so nice to be here with you, Christina. Carol, before we talk about your experience about working with RSF Social Finance and also getting this patient capital from RSF Social Finance, let's start with your journey for the last 25 years in building Lotus Food. Why did you and can start Lotus Food? Wow, that's a great question. In 1993, Ken and I took a market research trip through China. And this is where we discovered this amazing black rice. We were traveling in the southwestern part of China, known as Sichuan Bana. This is a region that's home to 26 different minority villages. And we were staying in a Dai minority village where we sat down to steaming bowls of black rice, which just smitten us. We loved the taste. We loved the texture, the nutritional value. And the next day after our first experience with this amazing nutrient-dense rice, we went to the market and we asked everybody and anybody to tell us more about this rice. What were we eating? And we heard time and time again, not only in this area that we were, but we traveled most of China in those two months. We heard the same tale that this was a rice that was reserved for the emperors due to its nutrient-dense properties. It was a blood tonifier. It aided in the circulation of blood. It was high in qi. And we thought, wow, this would just be so great to bring to the American consumer. And that led us on to a much larger journey in pioneering pigmented rices like Bhutanese red rice, which is another heirloom variety that is grown on small family farms in the Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan. So it really was started by finding these amazing pigmented rices and learning the plight of the small farmer and how difficult it is for them to be both food and income secure. And we set out to create markets for these heirloom varieties at a fair trade price. We weren't a part of the food industry, but when we thought about these pigmented rices that most rice in this country 25 years ago was brown rice and long grain brown rice and white rice, you know, basmati and jasmine rice were the most exotic rices. And so we knew if we were going to join the food 
and beverage industry that we had to be innovators from the get-go. So we thought these pigmented rices that had such beautiful plate presentation, but most important, they tasted great. And then the added value was the nutritional value of it. This was really something that we wanted to bring to the American consumer. So I told you before that I grew up in Indonesia, but never heard about the black rice. We are used to white rice and then we are used to the red rice. So it's really interesting that you found this black rice and then introduced it to the American market. How was the journey in introducing the black rice? The journey really started with chefs because they're the ones who are always looking for wonderful products to put on their menu, and they don't have the luxury of traveling the world looking for these products. So we actually started in food service because also we didn't have a lot of capital. We were self-funding this, and so we didn't need the packaging that we have for retail. And so it was the high-end chefs. And here we lived in the Bay Area where you had a plethora of wonderful, creative, innovative chefs who, when we gave them samples of both the black rice, the forbidden rice, and the Bhutanese red rice, they also loved the idea of working with it. And they're the ones who helped us to give us the opportunity to show that rice could be the center of the plate, not just a starch or a complex carbohydrate on the side. You established Lotus Food in 1995, but I know there has been innovation. You mentioned earlier, you do want to work with small family farmers, but Towards 2008, you introduced something new that really changed the way farmers basically planted their rice. So can you share a little bit what exactly Lotus Food did or switch in 2008? Thank you for that question, because when we started in 1993, our mission was to partner with small family farmers who were growing rice more sustainably, really to keep the biodiversity of rice alive while giving these farmers access to a global market at a fair trade price. And along with this, we also knew that organic certification was really important because we wanted not only the farmers to be able to grow food without pesticides and herbicides because we knew it was good for them, but we also knew it was better for the consumer as well. So that's what we were doing from 1993 to 2005. And then in 2005, Olivia Vent from Cornell, who was working at the Cornell Institute of Food and International Development, was actually looking for a partner because she and Dr. Norman Uphoff were working with farmers around the world who were growing rice using an agroecological method called the system of rice intensification, which is a lousy name for sustainable rice innovations <laughs> that we actually brand as more crop per drop. And this is a simple six-step methodology. It's a methodology whereby farmers use less water, less seeds, younger seedlings, and just by following these steps can get double and triple their yields. And what this has done for climate change is it's actually reduced methane gas emissions by 60%. Most people don't understand that rice does not 
thrive in water. It learned to survive in water, but it doesn't thrive in water. Therefore, we can use all the water that used to go for rice irrigation for families to have clean water, to use for other agricultural opportunities. And so we really committed ourselves in 2008 to actually commit ourselves to this new agroecological method, which turns out to be regenerative also. And that's like the new, everybody's now around building soil and growing our food regeneratively because we have to sequester carbon. And this methodology does that as well. From someone that came from a third world country, I know sometimes to introduce new practices, even though at the end it can triple or double their yields, still it's something that is new to a community or a country that has been doing all this traditional method years and years. So what exactly did you do to explain this to the small-scale farmers? Well, Christina, the most important thing to understand is Lotus Foods does not do the technical assistance. That is left to the NGOs, to our partners on the ground, to government, to nonprofits like Oxfam America, Mercy Corps, World Wildlife Fund. Where we come in is we are the market connectors. And you're right, though. Farmers have been growing rice with water intensity for 5,000 plus years. So changing how rice is grown was not easy, but it was a grassroots movement from farmer to farmer. So the NGO or the nonprofit would go into a village and they would basically, with technical assistance, show a group of farmers how this can work and then actually have them be on the test plots and learn the methodology and then recommended that they start with a small plot of their land to see what the true difference was. Because It was too risky to change this methodology from all their small acreage. And what the stories that we love to tell is that it's also a lot of the women who are the farmers because the men actually had to leave the villages to go to the cities to make more livelihood. They were the ones who adopted this because it actually was better for their health and their well-being and for the time that was saved so they could spend it more with their children or the uh, the home garden who embraced this. And they would, on a grassroots level, be the examples. And so if you're an SRI farmer and you're planting a very small eight to 10 day old seedling with only two leaves in it versus a conventional farmer who's going to take a group of seedlings and they're much older, they're 25 or 30 days old. And they only, they don't put one or two like we do in SRI. They put a whole bunch in the ground, you know, in the same spot. When you're finished planting an SRI field, it looks pretty thin. And the farmer next door says, oh my God, what did you do? You're going to starve. You're risking your well-being. And then in a month or two, when the SSRI field is just so abundant with green and tillers and panicles, the conventional farmer says to the SRI farmer, oh my goodness, I want to know what you're doing. Your field looks amazing. 
And then after the first crop and they see that they're getting more yield than the conventional farmer, then the farmer says, okay, will you teach me next year how to do this? So it's really been a tremendous grassroots movement that is now in over 69 countries around the world with millions and millions of farmers. 69 countries? Yes. yes. Wow. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. We still feel like we've just begun. You know, if we have an audacious goal at Lotus Foods to change how rice is grown around the world, it's going to take a lot more farmers to do this methodology. But in the years that we've been doing it, we've really seen such a tremendous uptake in this methodology because it works. It's a win-win for everybody. We've never seen anything like this that has economic, environment, and social impacts as this methodology. So economically, what have you seen? How does partnering with Lotus Food change the livelihood of the farmers? What it is, is by giving them access to a global marketplace and creating a brand, as we've been very fortunate to be able to do, they now can continue to grow and harvest rice and know that they have a market that is giving them a fair trade price, that is supporting them in other ways and truly partnering. And so I remember going to an Indian village and, you know, the first year we met them and when we were sitting under a covered structure, we were drinking coconuts out of the coconut with a straw. And then a year later or two years later, we came and the structure was finished and the women had new looms and we were drinking out of glasses and they had a new few rooms added to the house. So you could really see that their income levels have really changed. And I know it is a big deal, especially villages in India, villages in Indonesia. Sometimes like a few family would be sharing one small rooms and then their kids couldn't go to school because they have to help out in the field. So for Lotus Food to partner with them and then change their life radically, that is amazing. And I know that you mentioned a few times about fair trade price. And then I know know Lotus Food is a fair trade certified. What does fair trade price mean? So not every single rice of ours is fair trade. When we started 25 years ago, there was not fair trade rice. So we did something called direct trade. So basically what it is, is you're giving a percentage above the fair market value. With all this innovation, been in business for 25 years, and then you mentioned at the very beginning, you didn't have any capital, but how long before you stopped bootstrap and then getting new capital to grow Lotus Food over the years? So a lot of people say, yes, you know, Lotus was an overnight success that only took 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> a long time, overnight success. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so we did bootstrap the company with personal savings as well as borrowing from friends and family in the beginning, early stages. And then because this was a long time ago, in the very early stages, we were able to finance the company with credit cards that were offering 0% short-term financing. So our working capital was made up 
of about 20 credit cards that Ken just did an amazing job over a period of time where he would roll one balance over from one to another. Then actually our first line of credit came from Costco, from our membership with Costco, which was really fantastic. And then when we were becoming more successful, we went out for our first equity raise in March of 2008. And this is during the time that Investor Circle, before they combined with Social Venture Network. And what was really great about that is that here we were in business for a while already and being very mission aligned. And we didn't even know that there was actually a name for that, you know, that they were calling it triple bottom line, that it was not just profit, but it was really people and planet and profit. And so it was just something that was in our DNA from the very beginning. But again, we were very fortunate that our first investors were angels and also that our line of credit was able to come from other sources outside of a bank first until we met New Resource Bank, which actually was the first green bank in San Francisco. So I interview Mindy Christensen from RSF Social Finance, and then that's how you and I are connected. I really value what RSF Social Finance offer to social enterprises. Now, how did you get in touch with RSF? New Resource Bank, as I said, was our first real line of credit. And then because of SRI and Lotus Foods committing ourselves to rebranding to SRI in 2008, we attracted subordinated debt from two entities, Grassroots Business Fund and Root Capital. And we used this money to rebrand. We used the money to commit and buy product for these three first SRI countries and to overhaul our messaging on our packaging and our website and all the collateral material. And then in 2008, there was a financial crisis that hit the world. And like so many companies, our financials took a big hit during this time as well. And the subordinated debt lenders, they became extremely anxious and really wanted to initiate efforts to liquidate the company's assets. And it's interesting that both of these were mission-aligned lenders, but they were not committed to long-term relationships. That was the first time we were challenged by this. This is where ultimately RSF stepped in. New Resource Bank, like all banks, they're regulated but they're a green bank. So they were very patient and they showed leadership in influencing the subordinated lenders to provide more time for Lotus Foods to turn things around, which we did. And so after we turned things around, then New Resource Bank said, RSF would really be a perfect partner for you. And they introduced us in 2013. And RSF quickly recognized our mission and the work we were doing. And while they're not a bank that is as constrained by bank regulations, they still certainly put us through a due diligence process. And we were very 
fortunate that they took us on as a client and we continue to evolve and our working relationship. But it's really been a wonderful working relationship because all businesses go through good times and bad times. And RSF has always been there for us during both the good times and the bad times. It's interesting to note that RSF has a work with policy as opposed to what conventional banks who have a work out action policy where they would call the line and liquidate the company's assets. And this is why it's so important to partner with with like-minded, mission-aligned people who are patient. And we can't thank RSF enough for being there for us, you know, as I said before, in both good times and bad times. Okay, so do you mind like sharing what exactly the type of product that RSF offer to Lotus Food along the way since 2013? RSF has helped Lotus Foods, you know, weather a series of challenges. So I think because we're still in COVID and everybody has that on their top of their mind, maybe that's one of the best examples. So during this COVID starting in 2019, 2020, the spike in the demand required us to quickly expand our purchases in order to fulfill customers' needs and the sudden acceleration of demand that we saw. I mean, it was amazing. Rice is a staple grain. It's a staple product that people want in their pantries. And they were pantrying loading in the beginning of the pandemic. And we saw this opportunity And RSF was there right away for us, helping us not only to get through that window, but also to thrive. So they gave us access to our capital in potentially relieving us from covenants or helping us to think through how to manage this amazing window of opportunity that we had. And so we were able to react quickly than many of our competitors, which led us to many new customers and consumers and a real spike in these last year and a half in household penetration. And that all happened with the support of RSF. Now, here's the thing. Do you think if you work with other lenders, they would value the same relationship? Because In debt financing, normally what the lender is going to be looking for specifically is the cash flow coming in. And if you go to another lender outside RSF, would they have increased your credit line? Probably not. And again, that's why it's so important to choose the right companies. Or even if we could get go out outside to a conventional bank and maybe get more competitive interest rates for a line of credit, I don't think they would have the understanding of what we're trying to do and stand behind us in bad times or be as responsive. I mean, I remember a time when we went to RSF and we were asking for an increase in our line of credit and we reached out to them on a Thursday And RSF got back to us the next day, understanding the urgency of Lotus Foods' position and acted quickly. 
to change the agreement on this new loan so we could have a larger amount and we could really take advantage of the opportunity. I don't think a regular conventional bank would do that. I don't think they would really understand the opportunity and help you with these incredible support that we get from RSF. How is the supply chain crisis right now impacting Lotus Food? Not only everything is increased in price, but also the freight, the spike in freight is another example of how RSF has helped us. I mean, they've helped us in delaying a payback on our line of credit because we're spending much more money than we ever budgeted for, for freight, but you need to spend that money so you can sell the goods. And so again, it's really about patience, about mission alignment, and it's about commitment, really much more so than products offered. And we're so thrilled to have RSF as our partner. They've supported Lotus Foods, as I said, overcoming challenges as the business grows. And it gives us the opportunity not only to support our farmers, but also to continue the innovation and offer consumers these healthy and nutritious and great tasting products. Now, I am curious, as a co-founder and co-CEO, how you and Ken manage to stay focused on your mission? It's because we have aligned ourselves with people like our two angel investors, along with the right lender like RSF. We've never had the external pressures to do anything beyond our DNA and our mission from the get-go, which, you know, really would jeopardize everything that we set out to do. So we were really fortunate that we never actually had to even think that way. Aside from the angel investors, did you ever consider raising money from a venture capital fund? No, we've never considered that because, again, I guess out of of fear that it wouldn't be patient enough or mission aligned enough. What we did do and what I also like the idea of a nice mixture of both equity and debt. We were really fortunate to do a large debt round in 2014-2015, where most of the, even RSF was saying, maybe it's time to do more equity. And so instead, we raised a million-dollar debt round, and that really gave us the opportunity for growth capital that would have also worked with equity, but would have diluted us a little bit too. So it gives us the conteeps the control and the governance of our company, which is so important to us because if you're going to have an audacious goal and be mission aligned, you really need to be able to govern and control your destiny. For sure. I know that RSF has also one unique approach that I would love for you to discuss and share your experience. RSF has something called community pricing meeting. 
right? Where the borrower and the investors are basically meeting and discuss issues and if they need less interest rate or they need more capital. Have you been involved in this community pricing meeting? Yes, I personally have not attended, but I know Ken has, and I believe also Jack Decker, our director of finance has. And It's amazing to us, and it's safe to assume that when a lender makes the space for both investors and farmers to sit at the same table and ask for input and how to set pricing, the result will be more thoughtful and progressive and respectful policy that is collaborative and mutually beneficial. And it's just so enlightening that you know RSF does this. And, and again, it goes with what we said before that RSF's work with policy is so refreshing as opposed to work out practices of conventional lenders who you know move a distress loans to work out. And it's really an opportunity to discuss what's fair to both borrower and investor and an opportunity also for investors to go deeper into the business, not just making a decision from arm's length. It's such an amazing way to have everybody on the same table and then discuss the issue, get to know each other, get to know the business, get to know the investors. I wish there are more mission-aligned capital out there that truly practices what RSF is doing and helping Lotus Food. What is so unique about RSF is their shared goals of justice, equity, and environment. I mean, that's where their DNA comes from as well. And it's so rare to find like-minded, aligned lenders like that. So yeah, we really hope that RSF would be an example for others And, you know, with impact investing, it is happening a little bit more and more. And we're really hoping that the future is brighter. I know that Ken was a financial planner. Aside from he was like rolling over the 0% credit card, what other process that he had put in place? From a high level, I think Ken would say, Some of the lessons that he learned from being a financial planner is that, you know, the idea of being in business for yourself, but not by yourself, I think aligning yourself with capable people and organizations who have the expertise and the willingness to think along with you has really been important. And also just understanding that as an entrepreneur, it's learning by doing. And you have to have a vision of who you are and what your brand is and what you're aspiring to and a willingness to pursue a course that was previously not explored or find the innovation and lead with innovation. And you have to be true to yourself. And also being an entrepreneur also means going with your gut a lot of the times as well. So I think those are some of the lessons that he learned. But I think the most important thing, too, is learning when to know you need help and get access to that help and not being afraid to do that or letting your ego get in the way. Based on your experience having this business over the last 25 years, 
When do you think a business should start working with a fractional CFO? Well, again, we believe in doing all you can to support the business without letting your OPEX get too far ahead of your revenue growth. You know, and outsourcing skills is a great way to do this before making the full-time investment. We've done this in the past with finance, with HR, with supply chains, with product development, and even quality all across the organization. And we'll continue to do this given our future state when we require different set of skills from our current state. Is there anything else that you would like to share with my audience about patient capital? Every company is different as far as patient capital versus debt. And we just really believe that these work in tandem with each other. And on the debt side for us, RSF is, you know, their line of credit is our lifeblood. We have a very long supply chain with many raw materials whose prices fluctuate based on the market and also the demand. And this, you know, this line of credit allows us to advance monies to smallholder farmers at harvest and allow them to do their important work. But we also have long-term loans and we also took on some debt. And then there's the equity side and equity is particularly useful during inflection points in the business. And we took on our first angel investors, as I said, in 2008, which was a tremendous inflection point with us. And the same thing in 2012, we needed to make investments in people and systems and infrastructure to enable the growth that was about to come. So I think of both as very, very important and necessary for the long-term strategy of a company. Do you believe a business can continue bootstrapping if they want to grow? I mean, bootstrapping is very different than taking on debt, you know, from a mission aligned source. But I do also believe that so many young companies today are getting very high valuations and taking on a lot of equity and potentially losing control of their business. I'm definitely concerned about that. Because these are important mission-aligned businesses that need to thrive and survive for the long term. But with not having control of your destiny sometimes doesn't give you the opportunity to do that. And I definitely have seen it. I have seen my share. And and that's why I'm promoting this patient capital because I truly believe it really matters where you take your money. And if it's not mission-aligned, It's hard for you to look at the long term if an entrepreneurs have a goal, a long term goal, but the investors and the lenders value more on the short term goal, then the mission can get lost, in my opinion. So I'm really glad that you brought that up, Carol. Now, if my audience wants to find out more about Lotus Food and then all the mission that Lotus Food is doing, where can they find you? Lotusfoods.com. Carol, thank you so much for being here. And then this has been a tremendous value for my audience. And, and I truly appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity and to speak with you and your audience. And I'm really thrilled that we get to tell our story because I do think it's a unique one, but it can be helpful to all the great entrepreneurs that are 
out there now and that will be here in the future. For sure. And then I really hope a lot of mission aligned entrepreneurs in my audience can learn from you and Ken and Lotus Food to really understand that it really matters the money that they're taking for growing their business. Thank you, Carol. And that's bring us to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for mission-driven women entrepreneurs. When you are ready to grow to the next level and seeking a finance team and a fractional CFO who are all in on your mission and can help you maximize profit to make a bigger social impact, connect with us at theprofitreimagine.com forward slash let's chat.